You're listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. Bridges is a house church movement meeting in homes all across Music City. To find a house church near you or to find other ways to support or get involved, go to bridgesnashville.com. The idea of the all-you-can-eat food buffet didn't start in the United States. It was originated in France, but it came to America in the 1940s. A man by the name of Herb McDonald in Las Vegas was just trying to keep his gambling customers happy and in-house spending money. So late one night when they were about to leave and go to a nearby restaurant, Herb goes back into the kitchen, grabs some cheeses, breads, and cold cuts, brings them out, spreads them on the bar top, and voila, the buffet is in America. Now this morphed into his 24-hour buckaroo buffet where for just $1, you could have all-you-can-eat seafood, salad, and cold cuts. And by the 1980s, Food buffets were all over the United States, including my childhood favorite, the Golden Corral. Now, I have fond memories of Golden Corral. Just about every Sunday after church, my dad would take our family and we would go and uh, have an incredible meal. I mean, where else can you find pizza, shrimp, and fried chicken all in the same setting, right? Of course, me and my brother, our favorite was the dessert bar. That was our jam. And this was back in the day where cargo pants were pretty popular. So I have to admit, my 12-year-old self would often line my cargo pockets with napkins and go up to the dessert bar, get all the gummy bears and chocolate-covered raisins I could, stuff them in my pocket. Hey, listen, I know it's not something I'm proud of these days, but it didn't say all you can eat here at the restaurant, right? Now listen, I'm having a little bit of fun today about food buffets, because uh, when it comes to eating, we like to be able to pick and choose what we want. But here's the serious note. Many of us read the Bible like a buffet. We pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we want to apply to our life. And the Word of God is not the same as a buffet. We can't just pick and choose scriptures. I mean, all of us love verses like Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Or Psalm 37, 4, when it says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll grant you the desires of your heart. But we don't see the more challenging verses often making billboards and t-shirts, do we? We cannot treat the Bible like a buffet. And there are passages that are perplexing and verses that are meant to be wrestled through. There are books of the Bible that lean heavy on context. And if you take them out of context, they can lose their original meaning. We do a disservice to our spiritual growth when we read the Bible out of context. And that's why in this series, The Good Fight, we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through uh, 1st and 2nd Timothy. And we're looking at Paul's letters to his young protege. And we're going to pull out some things and truths that we can apply to our lives. Listen, Timothy was pastoring the church at Ephesus where the Ephesians were. And a lot of stuff was going on. Now, over these last couple of weeks, we've been in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, Let me give a quick recap. Uh, During our first Sunday gathering in January, Pastor David kicked the series off by sharing Paul's opening remarks in 1 Timothy 1, with the main points being you've got to know your calling, know your beliefs, and know your identity if you're to fight the good fight. Last week, I shared those last three verses in 1 Timothy 1. And mainly it's telling us that, listen, to fight the good fight, you've got to have faith and a good conscience. And today we're going to move on to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And if the Bible were a buffet, this is one of those sections where I would just move on and go to the dessert bar, right? But the Bible's not a buffet. 
So we've got to look at what the text gives us. Now, here are some verses that have been debated, taken out of context, misunderstood for centuries by commoners and scholars alike. Look, by no means am I batting a thousand when it comes to unpacking spiritual truths and hard scriptures. But as a pastor and a teacher, it's my passion and it's my job to be dedicated to looking at the text, studying God's word and asking, how can this shape and challenge my life as well as yours? I think in a day and age where culture says, look, you're totally fine just the way you are and nothing is wrong as long as it feels right. Well, that may be what our culture is saying, but it's definitely not what the Word of God says. The Word of God challenges, shapes, molds, brings transformation. We should expect to change the closer that we get to Jesus. We should expect to change whenever we open God's Word, and we should expect to be transformed when we come together to worship as a church. We should never leave the same. Okay, now we're going to jump into the Word, and I actually want to read this chapter in three different sections, and we're going to do some extraction on each section as we go. So here we go, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that all requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith of the Gentiles. That's God's word. Now, Jesus said, if we're to be in this world, we cannot be of this world. In other words, Christianity is countercultural. We don't live by the way of the world. We live according to the Jesus way. And to understand just how different our lives should look, all you have to do is go to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where Jesus says to pray for those who persecute you, to love your enemies and go the extra mile. So when we look at verses in the Bible, such as 1 Timothy chapter 2, we have to remember, this is not the way of the world. Prayers, requests, and thanksgiving, just for friends and family? No, he's saying for everyone, for those you get along with, for those you don't get along with, for those that you voted for in authority, for those that you didn't vote for, for those that you agree with and those that you disagree with. Why? Because God wants all to come to him. God's desire is for all to come and know the truth for those who are working alongside you, and for those who are in authority. Three different times in these seven verses, we see all people mentioned. Listen, the gospel is non-exclusive. It is for everyone, and we ought to pray with this very revelation. By the way, this Sunday is our third prayer and worship night. We do this on the third Sunday of every month. We come together as a church and we pray together and we worship together. And this Sunday, we're actually going to be praying out of 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to pray for those who are in authority. We're going to pray for all people that they might come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So I encourage you to join us 6 p.m. this Sunday at the Listening Room Cafe. And if you can't be there in person, we're going to live stream it as well. Pray for all people. Now, at the time, whether you were Jewish or Gentile, this would have been a challenge to what you grew up with hearing in culture. Listen, Jewish people didn't associate with Gentiles and vice versa. It was us and them. 
And yet the gospel sets a new story. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we can easily say that we believe God loves all people. We can easily say that, yeah, God wants all people to know him. But our prayers need to reflect that. Now, there's a gold nugget early on in this chapter that's easy to glance over if you're simply reading the Bible to get through it and not necessarily to get it through you. Uh, verse 2 says that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Peaceful, quiet, godly, holy. Not necessarily four descriptors that I could use to describe our culture right now, right? Now, this calls us out on the carpet and how we engage with other people around us. If your social media looks more like a dare to fight rather than an invitation to love, then there's a problem. So often we think that it's the loudest voice that wins. But in all actuality, when you live a peaceful and quiet life rooted in godliness and holiness, listen, the people that are around you will take notice of that. And they ask you questions and want to know more about your life and the God that you serve. Then we have 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now, this is a beautiful end cap to the first seven verse, verses, and it's a great precursor to the next portion of this chapter. You know, we've got to come before God with clean hands and a pure heart, as it says in Psalm 24. How can we come before God and lift up holy hands if we're holding on to grudges and bitterness and false ideologies against our brothers and sisters? Holiness takes surrender. Now, in this time, a Jewish man would often pray with their hands lifted at a 90-degree angle with their palms open. This would show that they were holding no weapons and that they were holding nothing back from God. It was a posture of surrender. If you wonder why people raise their hands during times of worship, it goes back to this. And it also goes to Psalm 63, verse 4. Here's what that says. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift my hands. One of my good friends, songwriter Michael Farron, says that your heart often follows your hands. So let's lift up holy hands, holding nothing back from the Lord when we worship Him. Now let's continue with the back half of chapter two. First uh, Timothy two, nine through 15. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Wow. Without a doubt, this is one of those New Testament passages that gets temperatures rising and blood boiling. And I don't simply want to take the easy route today and just avoid this part of the text. Now listen, when you come across a Bible verse or a passage that raises questions and sparks debate, we need to examine the scripture first by setting a few ground rules. Now, number one, read the passage in light of all other scripture. Simple generalizations here that women would, should be discriminated against in ministry has no place here. And Paul actually honors women 
who were in ministry with him, Priscilla, Euodia, Syntyche. He called fellow workers in Christ. Listen, Jesus also had women with him in ministry. In fact, some of the women were funding his ministry. Now, you cannot interpret the Bible without the whole of Scripture. So you've got to examine text with all of Scripture in mind. Second, we have to distinguish between passages that are uh, practices of that time and those that are designed to be timeless application. And third, we always need to read the text keeping in mind its cultural, social, and historical context. We cannot read first century text through 21st century goggles. Now, in this era, sadly, women were thought of and treated uh, as, as property. They had no rights or power. There was actually an ancient Jewish prayer where a man would pray and thank God that he wasn't a Gentile, he wasn't a slave, and he wasn't a woman. I mean, the cultural disposition at this time towards women was harsh. And so the gospel comes along and God says, I love all people. I value all people. I remember Galatians chapter three, right? There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ. Racism, sexism, and superiority have no place when it comes to Christianity. This is revolutionary. In fact, at the time, it wasn't even permitted for Jewish or Greek women to learn in public. So Paul is actually advocating on behalf of women in this passage. Now, in the Christian community, women were uh, regarded as fully human, fully valued. And this was groundbreaking in the culture of Ephesus in the ancient world. Okay, so why is Paul writing about clothing and being a Christian witness? What's that all about? Well, you've heard the old adage, clothes make the man. Well, here it would apply to women as well. Now, some may have taken their newfound freedom a little too far and dressed in the fashion of temple prostitutes, or maybe they were wearing distracting garments in places of worship. We don't know all of the story, but we know that Paul would only address a problem if there was a problem to begin with. Clothing always has context. Listen, if, what I, if I wear my Pittsburgh Steelers jersey to my favorite sports pub, everybody there would just think that I'm a great fan, right? But if I wear that same jersey onto a football field in Pittsburgh, I'd probably get booed out of the stadium, right? It's like my tattoos. Like here in the United States, tattoos aren't really glanced at twice in, in most instances. But when I went on my first mission trip to Guatemala, all of the kids thought I had just gotten out of prison, right? Context is key. Now, if you've ever been to Bridges Church here in Nashville, uh, you know that we meet in a music venue, uh, we dress casual, and everyone is welcome. Now, that being said, the lesson here is that clothing says something about the person wearing it. So recognize that when you put on an article of clothing, you represent more than just fashion. And next in this passage, Paul addresses a leadership issue. Now, as with all of Paul's letters, he's writing to specific people in specific situations. Rarely do we get all access glimpses into the behind the scenes setting. But in this moment, in this situation, it wouldn't be a far stretch to imagine that in this newfound freedom for women in the gospel, uh, there could have been some women stepping on others' toes, maybe some speaking out of order, or just a bit of chaos happening. And young Timothy is trying to pastor through all of that. And so when Paul writes that women should learn in quietness and submission, 
they wouldn't have heard it in the same lens that we do today. You know, these days we often hear things through the lens of offense. And so many times we think that everything is an attack when the truth couldn't be further. Now, in this particular case, the women in Timothy's audience, remember uh, these letters were meant to be read aloud in the presence of the church. The women in Timothy's audience wouldn't have heard this through the lens of, a t of offense, but more as a teaching moment. It was simply advice on how to learn, not a sexist remark. And for the record, that's just a good way for anyone to learn, men and women. As James wrote in James 1.19, my dear brothers and sisters, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, the last few verses in chapter two about Adam, Eve, and the fall step into a category that we may never fully understand on this side of eternity. Scholars have wrestled through the different meanings here, especially about women being saved through childbearing. But one interpretation that resonates with me personally is that in the original Greek, this would have read, saved through the childbearing, which is referencing the birth of Christ, the childbirth of all births, right? And through that birth, we are all saved. And clearly that's Paul's position because he writes to the Ephesians that we're only saved by grace through faith. Timothy 2 is not a statement of how women are inferior or how they're not allowed to do ministry. As I said earlier, that was not Paul's position. Matthew Henry's 18th century commentary puts it beautifully. And this is probably why we have this text about Adam and Eve. Matthew Henry says, women was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of man's side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Let me close. If you're looking for a perfect church, you're going to be looking for a long time. There are no perfect churches because there are no perfect people. Churches wrestle through things today just as they did back in the days of Paul and Timothy. But that's why the community of faith is so important. And here at Bridges Nashville, as a community of faith, can we encourage one another to love all people, to pray for all people, to lift up holy hands, and as Paul wrote, to continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. That's how we live as a witness to a world that does not yet know Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. To stay up to date on everything going on at Bridges, you can find us online at facebook.com slash Bridges Nashville or at Bridges Nashville on Instagram.